Welcome to the latest episode of the Informing Choices Minipod. In Aftershocks and Opportunities 2, Navigating the Next Horizon, editor and author Rohit Tolar explores 50 critical questions that organizations and individuals might ask themselves to help map a path to the future. To me, the core themes seem to be sustainability, resilient economies, and the geopolitical landscape. So in that context, I'm really pleased to have Rohit with us to share the crucial questions that underpin these themes. Firstly, Rohit, welcome back to the podcast. Remind us about you and your work, if you would. Hi, Steve. Thank you for having me back. So I'm a global futurist. I work with clients around the world through speaking, consulting, executive mentoring to help them think about what might be coming next and how do we prepare for it? How do we take advantage of some of the opportunities and how do we increase our resilience for some of the possible risks across multiple scenarios? The book was born out of a request to our network around the world to say, how might we respond to the pandemic and what could our world look like afterwards? We split the responses we received into uh, the first chunk were published in June 2020. And now a year and a half on, we're basically saying, well, what is, what is different now? And how is that landscape going to change even further? 37 authors from around the world uh, have shared incredible views from uh, the future of Africa in the Caribbean to how might the insurance industry change? And then chapters from yourself on, on really interesting uh, aspects of how leadership and change in organizations might evolve. And then we've got things around crypto economy and, and all sorts of other factors. And one of the things I, I really like um, uh, the, the, the way that you've, you've kind of concluded the book is by developing these frameworks to help people think about some of the really provocative questions that are asked through the book. And, and I want to focus on, on the third of these three frameworks. You know, you propose these critical questions that organizations and individuals need to ask. And as I said earlier on, the three areas that particularly intrigue me are sustainability, resilient economies, uh, and the geopolitical landscape. So, so what kind of questions were you posing under the theme of sustainability? So around sustainability, what we know is that we have to accelerate the agenda. Uh, we know that the targets for zero emissions are just way too far out. Uh, the planet is telling us we need to act faster. So there were a lot of questions around our behavior and around how do we mobilize the organization, society and individuals to take much greater responsibility for driving down not just our emissions, but also our energy footprint. How do we generate more and more of that from our home? and the amount of waste we produce. And how do we start to build sustainability into everything, into all our decision-making, all of our planning? How do we make smarter choices? Because there'll come a point in the next few years where we will be faced by tough choices. For example, if I want to take a flight, what will I give up in order to do that, to keep my, my emissions footprint at my allowance for the year? Maybe you have to give up my car for a year in order to take one flight. So it's, it's kind of getting us prepared for those kinds of things and, and getting organizations to think more about, well, what is it we will need to do to really get down to that footprint and how fast will we need to act? 
because if you look at the actions being taken and then the targets being set, there's a mismatch. There's a gap between the two. And again, it's, it's what are we fundamentally going to have to change in order to put us on that path? And how does that change our, our strategies, our business models, the way we run our organizations? And we're really challenging people to say, how do we accelerate all of that? I mean, whenever we think about the, the topic of sustainability, for, for me, certainly, I, I always go back to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And I, and I know you've spoken about those in, in the book as well. And one of the critical elements of that broader perspective on sustainability is about sustainable economics. But I think what we've also seen through the pandemic is the issue of resilience. So what are the kind of questions that, you know, that you're posing about resilient economies in the book, in that framework? So the, the challenge here is that, as you say, we've pushed a lot of economies quite hard. And there are a lot that are on the brink or have actually fallen over the edge. Hmm. They're, they're, they can't survive. They're not on our radar all the time. And in fact, much of the time, in a sense, for many. But they are effectively in this kind of category of weak or failing nations. So what do we do about them? What, what do they need to ask themselves in terms of how do we survive? And so this starts to raise questions about what is the ideal footprint for a nation going forwards? Do we have to merge some in order to create that critical mass? Do you have to bring some of these smaller nations together so that you only have one government ministry for economics, one transport ministry? You start to kind of reduce the costs, increase the efficiencies, and then it's, you know, what, what support models will we need? What is it that we'll need from donors, whether it's international institutions like the World Bank and IMF or from individual nations? And then it starts to raise questions about, well, what are the right support models for that? What, what is the best way of doing it? Do we give money in via international consultants and things who go and do it their way? Do we drop it straight into the economy? How do we avoid the risks of money being siphoned off? en route and do we start to move to a model where we you know effectively a country adopts another so you know will singapore adopt let's say afghanistan for example and help it through economically to build up not just its economy but also its institutions and those kind of things but with a much closer one-to-one -one relationship so i don't know what the right models are going to be but we're asking those questions and and what do we need to do within the country to start to build resilient mechanisms for the future, localizing supply chains? How do we pick the industries we want to invest in? How do we up the skill level? And how do we get money flowing more effectively through the economy? Uh, and that really interestingly ties into things like, well, what kind of currency do we want? Look at El Salvador, and it's just made the choices of saying, we don't want to be tied to the US dollar. And we don't want to be tied to US political influence. So it's just adopted Bitcoin as legal tender and given 30 odd dollars to every citizen in, in Bitcoin. And we'll see more and more of that as countries start to say, how do we take control of our own economic destiny? We might still take some help from outside, but how do we become more and more reliant on ourselves and therefore more and more resilient? I mean, one of the things I guess I, I, I'd observe over, over the course of the pandemic is this kind of almost transition through the period where we started with a health crisis, we moved to a social crisis and we ended up with an economic crisis. So do you think that, you know, part of 
building resilience is having a much more systematic view of the different factors that form part of developing resilient economies. Absolutely. So there's a lot of conversation going on uh, around the UN at the moment of does the UN need uh, an office of strategic risks where economic risks are one of the big things? Because we know that the current institutions, current mechanisms don't work. We know debt is unsustainable. We know the derivatives market is unsustainable. Who knows, a quadrillion dollars uh, or more, uh, which is way bigger than the global economy. And we know that the current system is quite fragile. Uh, and we have big winners and big losers. And so one of the questions is, is there a model going forward or a set of models that might be better suited to creating more resilient and sustainable economies? And that we can't get to straight away. We'll need the experiments to try out. Will we have to say, okay, Iceland, will you try running a debt-free economy on behalf of everyone else? We use you as a, a live laboratory for this. So we're going to have to ask those questions and challenge ourselves and start to think about what other measures that are forward looking do we need in order to work out how we operate. Uh, I'll just give you a simple example, world stock, uh, the way that the financial markets work, we do and we talk about the future of investing. But most of the time, we're just talking about making the current investment process a little bit more efficient taking people out, speeding up the process, doing better and better analytics, but we're still largely investing in the same things as we invested in based on looking at your historic performance and how you're doing today, and maybe a little bit of what are you investing in for the next couple of years. The alternative is to say, how do we invest in the future? What are the science and technology fields that are coming through that will create massively superior growth and what are the investments that traditional industries need to make to transform themselves to compete in that world? So that's a very different way of looking at business and investing. And actually the, the, the far superior returns come from investing in the future rather than investing in making the current system more efficient. So we've got to ask ourselves questions about, well, what models do we want and how do we improve those systems? And then as you mentioned, the sustainable development goals, there has to be a set of really quite challenging questions about, are we trying to make an impact on all of those things? Are we trying to move forward economically in a way that's sustainable? Or are we tacitly just accepting that we're going to leave a lot of people behind uh, and that we're going to focus on the billion or so and leave the rest behind because we just don't want to carry the cost of bringing those people with us and we don't want to get into all of the, the the issues and the, the kind of complexity of that. It's a lot simpler to focus on people who are relatively wealthy and systems that work for them. That, that's, that's really interesting. I think that gives us a really nice segue into the, into the last theme I wanted to talk about because you know, you'd already mentioned the role of, of different countries, perhaps supporting other countries, the role potentially of the UN. And then you, was, you were talking about the kind of the wealth inequality across the world. So in terms of the geopolitical landscape, which will play into that, what are the, you know, what are the critical things you're seeing there? Well, so the big one, I guess, is at one level, it's the tensions between China and the US. But at another level, it's the, the tensions between the big political and influence power players. So you've got China, the US, and then you've kind of got Russia and the EU wanting to play at the same table. But really been seen as kind of distant cousins by China and the US. 
Um, they let them sit at the table, but they're really kind of fed the scraps. Uh, and it, it's how this all plays out. And it's about the, the nature of the time horizon. Uh, and so you look at the West and largely we have a much shorter planning horizon. China is playing a much longer game, a 20 to 50 year game. So it's playing to a different set of rules. So the rest of the world is quite shocked at the moment by China privatizing, uh, uh, sorry, nationalizing a lot of businesses effectively and saying, but hang on, we, you know, China was encouraging entrepreneurship. It was creating free markets, blah, 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 blah. If you're playing the longer game, you understand that if you've never disbanded the Communist Party and actually its power has grown and the power of the president has grown and he's now got an unlimited term in office, it's kind of easy to then say, OK, does it make sense for them to have an entirely free market economy uh, with multi-billionaires being made? And, you know, the situation we've seen with Evergrande, where it's got 300 billion of debt that's unsustainable. And so you're seeing the Chinese government, but gradually take in more and more businesses, try and bring more and more control. That was kind of an inevitable scenario if you'd looked at it. But when we were looking short term, we just weren't focusing on that. Everyone was buying their Baidu shares and, you know, getting excited about Alibaba. Uh, and so then you've kind of got, well, where will this tension be played out? Uh, and Afghanistan was a classic example. Uh, that wasn't just a kind of US coalition versus the Taliban. That was all sorts of players in there having influence and doing things. And so there's, there's questions about how and where will geopolitical conflict be played out? Secondly, it's how we're going to build that influence and sustain that influence over time. China's trying to play the geopolitical game through economic influence. So it's got this Belt and Road Initiative, which is about effectively creating trade routes and a trade ecosystem that touches up to 150 countries. And everyone's guess about what the true value of that is. But let's say $5 trillion of investment going in from China and then double that from local players and other institutions. That binds people in. That gives China the potential to kind of influence the political system, the decision making, its access to resources, and it's making everything political. And then you could easily see that being a platform for them taking their own digital currency, the digital yuan, into being the single global currency for 150 countries. And what you're seeing is that everything now starts to become part of the geopolitical agenda. So competition for leadership in key fields of science and technology is very politicized now. Everyone wants to lead in AI. China's investing 40, 430 billion in order to create that leadership. And so in almost every domain you look at, whether it's genetics and synthetic and biology, whether it's new materials, whether it's green technologies, every one of those is not just an economic battleground now it's a political one and it, things like global institutions start to be impacted by this because we start to say well do we have the right global institutions today uh, how do we tackle some of the issues that don't fall naturally into anyone uh, so climate change who's best positioned to deal with that globally we have the world health organization we don't have a world climate organization mm -hmm. International terrorism, we've really struggled to deal with that through the UN. 
And then you've kind of got the questions of countries like India and China who are saying, look, how representative is it for every country to have one vote at the UN when we have a billion plus people, Tuvalu has less than 20,000, but our populations have the same amount of votes. Surely the representation on these institutions should be proportional to population. For obvious reasons, no one wants that in the West because China and India would then dominate everything. But then you start to say, well, we'll you know, how will you structure the new institutions and what new institutions will they create? So China's got, you know, um, uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, you've got ASEAN. Will they just grow their own power blocks and gradually usurp the authority of the other institutions? So this is all a fascinating battleground. And then just throw in one of the most interesting bits is how do you resolve conflict in the future? Uh, are conflict resolution solutions have kind of declined in power. And so maybe we're going to have to look elsewhere and things like AI. Uh, it's being used in legal dispute resolution more and more. They're starting to analyze how it could be dealt, used to deal with humanitarian conflicts. And the question is, could we scale that and do the learning about solutions that do work and start to have AI do more of the mediation in global geopolitical conflicts? Obviously, huge issues about whether the parties will agree to binding decision-making by the AI what are the starting assumptions you use? How do you avoid bias? But there may be smarter solutions that don't end up with a lot of money, a lot of you know, being wasted, a lot of land being negatively affected through conflict, and most importantly, a massive cost to humanity. So there are those kind of bigger macro questions about how do we resolve these things in a more humane, an efficient manner going forward. I think that's absolutely fascinating. I love the, um, the, the, the later point you made there about conflict resolution as being a, a critical component of, some, of creating some kind of uh, positive outcome from the current geopolitical landscape we're experiencing. So Rohit, that was uh, absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Tell us, how can people learn more about you, learn more about the book? So you can find out more about uh, our books and myself at our website, fastfuture.com. And if you want to know more about me, then you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. Uh, and there aren't many Rohit Tawas out there, so um, it should be quite easy to find me. All the usual places. Um, uh, Rohit, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Do let your friends and colleagues know about the Informing Choices mini pod, and I'll see you on another episode very soon.